0: Fresh new stuff. MJ Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it with life and darling air. Good morning everyone. This is Fran Lewis. This is MJ Network. And we're going to welcome the author of... A Matter of Life and Death. Philip Morgan is here, and this book is so fantastic. And I am so glad you're back. How are you? And good morning. Nice to hear from you. Nice to have you back on MJ Network, which is after my sister, Marsha Joyce.
1: I I always love to be on your show. This is, I don't know, how many times now? About four or five?
0: Yeah, so here I am, and... um, so the questions in the interview, this is to really interesting. The prologue was really different. Why did you begin the book with a prologue that relates to a second case dealing with the death of a fighter? That was interesting.
1: Okay, so uh, <clears throat> there wasn't a prologue initially, and I have a terrific editor, Keith Kayla, and um, we talked, you know, what happens is the way this works is I write the novel. And then uh, I'll do as much editing as I can so that when I send it to New York, uh, it's, you know, hopefully in pretty good shape. And then Keith Mm. does a wonderful job of of pointing out problems um, with the book and, uh, you know, helping me to to make it much better. And one of the things he thought that I should do was to – start off the book with a bang and I always like to do that anyway
0: Uh, but for some
1: reason when in the first draft of a matter of life and death uh, I I, it didn't have as much of a a, you know a a punch as I usually do so uh, he suggested that I bring in some of the major characters right off the bat in the prologue and Sort of leave the reader hanging, knowing that something really bad is going to happen, but not explaining what it is, and then coming back to it. And I thought it was a really good idea. So uh, the prologue does does uh, uh, bring you into a case that doesn't happen for uh, several chapters, but mm-hmm. it does make the reader hopefully say, "Boy, what's what's going on here? What what's happening?" and uh you always want to do that with a with a book. You always want to start off, especially a first chapter uh by making the reader say, "Boy, this is interesting. I wonder what happens next and if you can do that, then the reader really gets into the story and and uh, that's how you keep people interested
0: well that's very true because lately you have you know how many books I could read in a week. And there are days that I pick up the first page and I go, like, I'm going to feel like I'm going through a root canal and don't even want to finish. <laughs> it's bad, yeah. There are a couple that like, like, holy God, I have to read this? Oh, my God, how am I going to get this author to know that this book is really bad? I don't like saying it's bad, so I just write a summary and say, oh, God, I'm not going to tell you whether I like it. Now, this part really got me. So, you go and you tell me that you leave me hanging with the fighter, and then you bring in Erica the transgender reassignment. How do you take a case like that and how did you, did you ever take a case like that? and why did you include it and I think the president well, just picked somebody as a transgender as one of his secretaries
1: you know it's it's really interesting um when i the, the transgender is like on the front page every of every newspaper now because of yeah the bills that are trying to ban transgender athletes and all these other things. Uh, well, I got involved with this back in the 1970s when really no one was talking about it. I, I was a, a very young lawyer. I, I can't remember exactly what year I got this case, but uh, I started in practice in about 1973, 72. And a, a a woman came in, very attractive woman. Um, I think her name was actually Robin or Robbie, something like that. Now that I think about it, I can't remember her full name though. And uh, explained that she was really a male who was going through a, a, a gender reassignment. Although I don't think they used the, that term back then. And she said that she, she was uh, going from being a, a man to a woman. And the only thing left was the operation that would change her genitals. And she had been arrested for uh, prostitution and wanted me to represent her. So uh, fortunately, the leading expert. Uh, back in those days on um, uh, doing these sex change operations was up at the Oregon Health Sciences University. That's our, our medical school. And I went up and I, I talked to him about, uh, about the, my case. And in order to be guilty of prostitution, you have to engage in sex with the intention to get money for it. And he explained to me that that uh, men who are becoming women will frequently uh, try to engage in sex to prove that they're attractive to a male, and it's not necessarily for the money so uh, mm. the the judge that I was in front of um, judge launder. Uh, I had, I, I, again, I was I was fairly new to the legal profession at that time, and I had substituted in in the middle of a trial with the with the judge Launder as the judge, because uh, cause the lawyer who had the case realized he had to be a witness, and I walked into this case and Launder had been really angry with the other lawyer and he started getting on me and. We had words, and it was—he threatened to report me to the bar, and it was a whole mess. Uh, and I, you know, I was just stunned because I just like walked in. I didn't, you know, I had never hadn't been in the trial.
0: So anyway, oh what
1: happened was I got assigned to him for this case, and I decided to show that I had no hard feelings. I waved the jury, tried it straight to him, and of course, we had an expert witness and the district attorney, uh, young DA, uh, they get tons of cases. They really don't have the same opportunity to prepare that a private attorney does. And uh, I was able to get a not guilty verdict from, uh, from Judge Wander and patch up our differences at the same time. So, uh, But this, again, in order to do the case, I had to learn all about the operation and all of the steps that someone goes through, so uh, when I wrote A Matter of Life and Death, I wanted to introduce um, all the main characters. Ian Hennessy is the young DA, Anthony Carrasco, who's the evil judge, Uh, Mm -hmm. Robin Lockwood, who's the heroine, and I thought, well, let me do it through um, a case similar to the one that I had in 1970. So I sort of used it as a vehicle for for introducing the reader to all the important characters in in the
0: book. Well, how did she she took the case, right? And Hennessy he didn't he didn't do his homework. He was not even ready for this one. He just sort of messed it up. So what? How did, you, how did she? How do you prepare for a case like this? And why did she take it?
1: Well, she takes it because she's a criminal defense lawyer. And that's what criminal defense lawyers do. They represent yeah. people who are in trouble, who've been charged with a crime. So uh, she doesn't do it with any um, political motivations. It's She She has this person who's a CPA uh, going through a uh, gender reassignment, and uh, Eric is a nice person, and her life could be ruined if she's convicted. She could lose her job and... Uh, so Robin does it because this is a person who really is desperate for help. And uh, so, but she also does it because that's, you know, that's what criminal defense lawyers do. You yeah. have someone who's struck with a crime. But in this case, she's very sympathetic to Erica's situation. So it's got that added motivation of liking the the client and, and wanting to mm. do a great job for them because you like them. Uh, so that's why Robin gets involved. From a writer's standpoint, I needed to have a Robin is my uh, is my main character in the in the series that I've been doing. That started with Third Victim, um, Reasonable Doubt, uh, uh, Perfect Alibi, and this is the fourth book in the series. So uh, she's my heroine. So she's the she's the main character in all those books, and, and so. I thought this would be a very interesting way to introduce her. But again, uh, what's also interesting is how transgender uh, uh, is, is like the word of the day. And it's, every yeah. time you pick up a newspaper now or, or look on your phone for you know, breaking news, it has something to do with transgender. So I thought it would be really timely as well as a good way to, to get the book started.
0: I wonder sometimes if people will learn to accept people for who they are. That's really sad. It is sad well, that they. I
1: mean, it'd be nice. It's just, you know, it's it's being used as it's, as a, one of these hot button issues, uh, yeah. that really don't affect. I mean, the thing is, if someone's transgender, it really doesn't affect me at all. That's Neither. just, you know. So you know, it would be it would be nice if people. Stop uh, trying to make life miserable <laughs> for people who are going through these, and I do in the book I do explain all of the difficulties of going through this operation it's not yeah. fun it's it 's expensive it's painful uh, and I do go in detail in the book and how how you actually go through one of these operations and I, I it's just sort of mean to to make life miserable for someone when it, it has absolutely no impact on you whatsoever.
0: I agree. It doesn't make them any kind of a different person. Just let them be who they want to be. So, mm-hmm. Eric, so Erica has this background. Why was she arrested, this poor thing? Well,
1: again, in the book I I used the information that I got when I was uh, you know, doing handling the case, the real case, uh and she's trying to prove that she's a male who's becoming female and she wants to uh prove to herself that she's attractive to men and again this is very common um among uh men who are transitioning to women they they want to know w- will men accept them uh as a as a female so that's why she gets involved in the in the uh the situation where she approaches a person who turns out to be an undercover mm. police officer.
0: Now we get to the character that needs to learn how to become a lawyer. We have Ian <laughs> and he's not thought of very well, but he has to count on his parents to help him. So how come he got a job as an assistant d a where were they well, What Ian... were you thinking? <laughs>
1: Ian's one of the main characters in the book. He's a he's a, a young um I guess millennial is the term. He's someone who um as really doesn't have a lot of get up and go. His parents are super successful uh and they put a lot of pressure on him to be successful. But he really isn't as he isn't that bright. But uh, they're able to get him into good schools. He doesn't do well in them, so then they get him into another school. Uh, they use their pull to get him into law school, where he really doesn't shine at all. And finally, they get him uh, use their political pull to get him a job in the district attorney's office. And initially, when he's in the DA's office, uh, he just he he doesn't work because he just feels like, you know, it, this has been given to him. He doesn't really want to do it. And uh, then he gets in danger of being fired. And mm. uh, his supervisor tells him, you know, you just lost a couple of cases that, that, uh, that a chimpanzee could win. Uh, if you don't shape up, you're going to be out of here. And so he actually st- puts in some work and wins a couple of cases and starts getting a little bit of self-esteem. And uh, it's his vulnerability that makes him a perfect uh, foil for the real evil bad guy, Anthony Carrasco, who is uh, a circuit court judge who's completely unethical and involved in
0: criminal activity. So then he meets Stacy. Uh-huh. And he thinks he's met somebody <laughs> that's really going to care. Yeah, oh, boy. God. So he meets Stacy. And then we have the two detectives that work the case against Erica. That's Carrie and Dylan. So how do they come into this? And, Stacy, watch out, people. That's all I'm going to say. Well,
1: Roger Dillon and Carrie Anders uh, are uh, two homo- Portland homicide detectives for in all of my books with uh, all of the Robin Lockwood series. And uh, they're really interesting uh, characters because uh, they they're sort of an odd couple um, mm-hmm. uh, Carrie is uh young the younger of the two she's in her thirties uh and she's big she's uh, six foot tall uh she's like almost uh, has the strength of a man um, and which which she has to use occasionally when she's you know subduing a uh uh, a criminal. And uh, because she's very slow talking and doesn't look like she's very bright, people underestimate her, but she was actually a, a math major. So she's got this very high IQ. Um, and her partner is Roger Dillon, who's a very dapper uh, African-American in his 50s. And uh, the the. He, the thing that they do have in common is they're both super smart. So in the series, um, mm. they're the they're the homicide detectives that I always have investigating the murder cases, and they get involved with um, uh, with in the book when they investigate the murder of Anthony Carrasco's wife.
0: I know that that comes after. So he meets Stacy, and she leads him down on the path to nowhere. So how does she manage to win the case for Erica, and what will it mean to her in the future?
1: Well, I mean, Stacy is not really involved in Erica's case. Yeah. Uh, but but Anthony Anthony Carresco in the very first part of the book, uh, he's in, uh, and this is, I think it's the first chapter even, He's in San Francisco yeah. for the American Bar Association, and he's had a fight with his wife who has a lot of money, um, but they're not getting along very well. And he doesn't feel like socializing with the other lawyers, so he goes to a bar in another hotel. And Stacy is a, is a very high-class uh, prostitute. She's an a, a escort, professional escort and they meet in this bar and he becomes infatuated with her and uh asks her to to come to portland where he says he'll put her up in a in an apartment that he owns and pay her you know pay her sort of an allowance uh, to be his mistress and uh so she does come to portland he puts her up and uh <clears throat> Carrasco wants to get rid of his wife because she's talking about divorce, and if they get divorced, he she won't have access to her money, which he does now. And so uh, I don't want to give away too much of the plot,
0: but mm. he uses
1: uh, Ian. Um, he has Stacy seduce Ian as part of this complicated plot to kill his wife and get away with the perfect crime.
0: Not too smart, really. So we got the poor guy. This is interesting. Here we go for the, new, the, the real crux of this. Joe Latimer in the fight. Why do you agree to the legal fight, the no-holds barred. and what does it mean? And the, these are these – are, I, I imagine they do this today anyway. This is pretty Common. But he, he fell into well, this, the poor guy.
1: Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I, was, I was asked this a, a couple of times, whether these no-holds, the legal fights exist, and I really didn't do any research on it. I just decided to use my uh, imagination and create this situation. Uh, Joe is, is sort of one of the, the – he's the central character in the big murder case, um, and he is a, a, a short-order cook. Who did box professionally? And he wasn't very good as a boxer, but he did he did get occasional fights for money as a pro. And uh, he's lost his job and he's homeless. And he's married and he has a child and he he loves his wife and he loves his kids, and he's just beside himself because he can't figure out how to provide for them. And they're they're living in a tent city, and we have a lot of. Um, A lot of homeless uh, in Portland, where I live in Portland, Oregon, and we have a big homeless problem, and uh, there are sections of uh, the city that have been set up for homeless encampments, so people have tents, or sometimes they make makeshift houses, and Joe's living in a tent in one of these with his wife and young child, but uh, he's just... Desperate to get them out, and he's approached by a uh, uh, a runner for this these illegal fights, a guy who who tells him that if he'll uh, he can get three hundred dollars for a fight, which is huge for Joe because that means he can get his wife and child out of the the homeless camp, and put them in a motel where they'll be safer. It's not it's dangerous in these camps. So um, he decides to take the case or take the fight and uh, and during the, the fight uh, he he believes that he's killed the person he's fighting and yeah. uh, then he gets blackmailed by the people that are running the fight into going to this house and committing burglary. And he's the one that goes in and finds the dead body of Carrasco's wife, and then he's subsequently arrested and charged with a aggravated murder, which is is the the uh, uh, type of murder that if you're convicted, uh, you can get a death sentence. And I, I wanted to use the uh, I I was a criminal defense lawyer for 25 years. I handled 30 homicide cases during those 25 years, and 12 of them were death penalty cases. And death penalty cases are different from every other Mm -hmm. type of legal proceeding, civil or criminal. There's nothing like them. They're they're a a totally unique type of of case. And uh, they're even wildly different from, a regular murder case where the death penalty isn't involved. And I thought it would be interesting for readers to see how uh, a lawyer handles a death penalty case. So uh, when I was getting the idea for this book, I thought I could use uh, uh, my novel, A Matter of Life and Death, not only it's a you know it's a, it's it, it's not a lecture about the death penalty it's mm-hmm. a it's a thriller with with a, a surprise ending and twists and turns uh, a lot of action and and courtroom action action outside the courtroom because uh, Robbins also a was a professional fighter too for a while uh, but I thought could you use this to show readers how a lawyer. Um, Handles a death penalty case from beginning to end, and uh, so that was that was the sort of the idea that I initial idea that I got, and then I said, okay, that would be hopefully the reader would find that interesting, and now I have to devise a plot, uh, a murder case that will enable me to show how Robin Lockwood. Handles this case from the time she's she becomes Joe's lawyer to, through to the end.
0: This it this was it was interesting. You know, people that are young lawyers, I think I put that in my review. People that are lawyers that want to learn how to do this should read the book and figure it out and learn. You can learn a lot just by reading this seriously. So. She decides to. He decides finally to confine a ribin and she takes the case. But how come in a death penalty case you need a second person, you need a co counsel? She couldn't do this by herself. She needed somebody else.
1: Yeah, and and uh, just as, as an aside, I, I I was kind of this is my uh, twenty, I think it's my twenty fourth or twenty fifth book. I lose track, uh, and I was sort of looking at them, and about half of the books are standalones uh you know they're not in a series but then i have roughly the same number that are in a series and uh this uh this one is is a uh this one is is the uh robin lockwood series but i also had an amanda jaffe series that has mm-hmm. five novels in it, where amanda jaffe is the main character wild justice fugitive uh ties of vine proof positive i can't remember the the fifth one uh violent crimes so amanda jaffe is one of my main characters in in this other series well uh when you do a death penalty case in oregon you're required to have a second chair and the reason for that is that the, the death penalty cases are the most serious case you can possibly handle and uh Nobody's perfect. I mean uh, people, uh, even the most brilliant lawyers, make mistakes. Mm-hmm. So what the bar decided was that you should always have a second person assisting who can uh, sort of work like the editor works uh, when they're when you're writing a book, and the second chair, first of all, you divide up responsibility because there's a lot of stuff to do in in every criminal case. Uh, There's the the investigative part where uh, you try to find out factually what happened and what is the evidence going to be. So you'll, you know, you have an investigator who's going to go talk to witnesses. Then the lawyer has to prepare direct examination of his own witnesses you find out mm. who the other witnesses are for the state, so then you have to figure out how to cross-examine those witnesses. Some of the witnesses will be experts like fingerprint experts or uh, you know, forensic experts from the lab will talk about DNA or uh, uh, you have the medical, medical testimony about causing death. So usually but then the other part is legal stuff legal issues evidence issues uh motions to suppress you have to do jury instructions you write up instructions uh that you give to the judge and you ask him when you're instructing the jury use these instructions so what you usually do with one of these big cases definitely isn't big they usually last for several weeks to several months uh you have a second chair, in this case Amanda Jaffe, who assists Rob, and then you divide up responsibilities. One person is going to do the legal. When I did death penalty cases, uh, sometimes I was second chair, sometimes I was uh, I was lead counsel. But somebody does all the legal research while the other lawyer concentrates on the witnesses. So. Um, uh, but the other thing that you need the second chair for is to tell you if you're screwing up. Because sometimes mm. you get a really good idea. I think I'm going to uh, – here's the biggest decision you make. Should you call your client as a witness? Mm. And that's usually the single most serious decision that a an attorney makes. Uh, because if you're a defense attorney – the state has the complete burden of proving its case, and you really don't have to do, legally you don't have to do anything. Because the state has 100% of the burden. So For they've accused your client of killing someone, they have to prove to the jury beyond a reasonable doubt that your client's guilty. And because they have 100% of the burden, The defense really doesn't have to do anything. You don't have any obligation to cross-examine, put on witnesses, et cetera. Now, usually you do, but if the state's case is not going well and you put your client on, it could cost you the case if they're not believable. So there there are decisions that are really important. That's probably the biggest one. And Mm -hmm. you need someone to examine your decision to make sure it's a good one. And uh, uh again, like I said, that's a parallel to what an editor does with a novel. So when I write A Matter of Life and Death, I submit my manuscript to New York to Keith Taylor, who is my editor. And I wouldn't send the manuscript to him if I didn't think it was pretty good. Mm. But because you're close to the book, you've been working on it maybe for two years, you may not see problem because if you saw the problem, you'd correct it. So, so the editor's job is to take a look at your book without any emotional investment and point out where he thinks there are problems. And that's what second chair in the murder case does in the death penalty case. They're there to, to say, now, okay, so uh, you think you should put on your Client, but I think that would be a big mistake, and here's why. So, so in addition to being, uh, you know, dividing up the tasks that are involved in preparing a murder case, you also need someone to kick you in the butt if you're making a mistake.
0: I agree with you. I wish my last editor would do that. My book's coming out next month. I hope, in May, and. They they read it. They said it was really good, but I said where can I fix the plot? Where can I make it stronger? And they just said delete this, delete that. They, they didn't give me any help. So I had a few other authors help me, you know, to tell me how to bone it up and how to make it better. So you, you know, that, that's okay. important. Okay.
1: Congratulations, by the way. Hopefully it will do really well.
0: Hopefully it's really weird. It's called Population Zero, <laughs> a world without people. The subtitle ah. is Stories About the End of the World, and I created nine worlds that I don't think anybody wants to live in, Then I invited a dead person's spirit to come back and experience it. That's all I'll say about it. It's 77 pages of, like, The Twilight Zone. I wrote it because ah. people are not thinking now, so what would happen if after this pandemic this is what happened? So now we have Vanessa Cole. And why was she thought that she would win this case? She's a pretty, you know, pretty good adversary as a lawyer.
1: Yeah, and Vanessa is is uh, my district attorney, uh,
0: yeah.
1: who appears, who appears in the series. Um, she's super smart. She, she's a, a Stanford Law School grad who worked her way up through the district Multnomah County, which is Portland's uh, Portland's in Multnomah County. Uh, so she worked her way up. In the Multnomah County District Attorney's office, uh, and and got to be one of the top uh, uh, criminal deputies because a she's super smart and wins her cases, but she's also very ethical, and uh, she is uh, uh, when the the district attorney before her had to quit because of health reasons. The governor appointed her to fill the spot, and then she's uh, uh, is is running to become the become the district attorney in an election. So, in any event, she sees this uh, sees this case as a good way to get her face in front of the public. Uh, so, uh, she she wants to use it so that. She can get publicity that will help her uh, win her election to be a district attorney. But she mm-hmm. also feels like it's a slam dunk. Uh, there, the Joe Lattimore's fingerprints are in the room with the dead body, very close to it. Uh, he's seen running out of the house by Anthony Carrasco and Ian Hennessy. Uh, so you have a judge in it. Deputy District Attorney, who are the eyewitnesses, um, and it, there's a there's a lot of uh, you know there's a lot of evidence that makes her believe that if she tries the case, she should be able to win it easily. But she doesn't. She doesn't count on Robin's ingenuity.
0: No one counts on Robin. Don't miss on. Don't underestimate Robin. Now, we got lucky. Robin was glad that Wright was the judge. How come?
1: I, I missed that.
0: Why was she glad that the judge that they picked is the right, was the right judge, Judge Wright? How come she was glad that he was the judge? Well, if Caruso was the judge, she would lose all the way.
1: Well, Carrasco couldn't sit as the judge because, obviously, his wife's the victim in yeah. the case. But um, – she she likes the judge uh, because he's he's fair-minded and Robin I, I guess the pe- readers who don't or people who are listening who haven't read the Robin Lockwood books um, just a little bit of background on her because she uh, she's a really fun character uh, a good portion of my novels twenty-five novels have very strong women characters as the lead. Not all, I, I frequently have men too, but but there's a, a big block of them that have um, very strong women characters. And they frequently in the books get in very dangerous situations. Mm. So uh, when I switched over uh, to St. Martin's, they said, we'd like you to do a series Um and so I was thinking, okay, that's 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 fine. I like doing a series. I've done a couple of them, and I was thinking I'd like to have a very strong woman character as the main character. Okay, but how could I make it realistic um, if if Robin Lockwood gets into a physical, if she gets into a fight or she's attacked by somebody, how would I make it believable to the to the reader that she could actually win a fight with a man. So I got this idea for, for Robin and Robin grows up in a small farming town in the Midwest and her older brother, she's the youngest, she's the only girl and she's the younger of four, four siblings. Her older brothers are all championship wrestlers in high school. And so when she gets to high school she wants to wrestle. And so she tries out for the boys team, but some of the parents are really upset that a girl is going to be wrestling with their with their boy child. They don't they don't want that. So they complain to the school board and the school board tells Robin that she cannot wrestle on the boys team. So Robin's father, who's very supportive, hires a lawyer and the lawyer the school board and, and Wins and so She's allowed to wrestle with the boys Well that's what inspires Robin to be a lawyer when she grows up So she does Get on the team and she becomes the first Girl to place In the district wrestling championships She takes third place Her senior year and then She goes to college and she's also Super smart So in college though she goes to a State university that has a Division One wrestling team, and she knows there's no way that she could ever, you know, get on that team because these are all nationally ranked uh, wrestlers. But there's a gym nearby that where they're teaching mixed martial arts. So she starts doing mixed martial arts, and by the time she graduates college, she's fighting professionally on television and pay-per-view events, and she's ranked in the top ten nationally in her weight class. Mm. Uh, now, at the same time, uh, she gets accepted to Yale Law School, which is probably the toughest law school in the United States to get into. And because, uh, again, she's brilliant. She's not only mm. uh, a professional fighter, but she's also uh, has a, a championship reign. And. When she's at Yale Law School, she uses her money that she gets from fighting on pay-per-view events in Las Vegas to pay for her tuition. But then she suffers a really brutal knockout in her first year of law school uh, where she gets a concussion and short-term memory loss and decides that she should hang up her boxing gloves and uh, and become a full-time law student. And that's uh, that's sort of her background. So in the book, she does occasionally – get in fights uh, with males, mm-hmm. and she's able to, to win because, she, again, she's a professional fighter, and usually
0: the guys that are fighting her don't realize that. So we have the judge's wife, the, the and why her mother feels that he planned her death. So she sort of puts a, puts a like you no a no question mark there. Why I don't believe that this was just some random whatever. She feels that he planned the death, right? And now Joe is in jail, and he has to write down what happened. So how does that connect?
1: Well, the it uh, it's just another little plot yeah. twist. Um, the the uh, the the murder victim, Barrasco's wife is the daughter of an extremely wealthy and powerful woman, and she is just certain that Carrasco has is behind her, her daughter's murder and so she assists uh robin um, because even though robin is representing someone who's, who she thinks has, has She's the, the mother. Actually, thinks Joe Lattimore did the, killed, the kill, killed her daughter, but she thinks he's a puppet for Carrasco. And so she, even though uh, Robin is representing the, the man that she believes is her is, killed her daughter, she still goes to Robin and says, "I will help you um, mm. because I, I'm convinced that the real bad guy here is is her." Is the uh, is the uh, my daughter's husband, who is really evil, and Carrasco is very evil.
0: So we have Jeff, her boyfriend. Tell us about Jeff, her boyfriend, and how does he help solve the case, and why does he get hurt? I like him.
1: Well, I don't want to tell how he gets hurt because that's one. Of no, the, just
0: just like why how does he, ex- he help her?
1: Yeah, well, in in the third victim, which is the first book in the series. Uh, Robin is hired by Regina Barrister, yeah. who is the most brilliant criminal defense lawyer in the bar. And uh, Robin is just thrilled. This is her dream job. And when she's hired, uh, they immediately get a murder case. Uh, and as she works with Regina, she begins to suspect Regina may be having the onset of dementia. So that's one of the main uh, ethical problems in the third victim. If you're a young lawyer, fresh out of law school, you're working for, you, you get your dream job. You're hired by the most brilliant and respected woman. I mean, this is someone that Robin just idolizes. And you get this definitely case, uh, and then you start to suspect maybe that you're mm. the sorceress. She's called the sorceress because she wins cases that no one can win. Uh, You begin to suspect that your boss may be showing signs of Alzheimer's or dementia. And so Mm. what do you do? Do you you confront your boss and tell her you think she's losing her mind and maybe get fired? Or do you keep your mouth shut and maybe have your client die because your boss can't do a competent job? Uh, in any event Regina has an investigator and that's Jeff. Uh and and Jeff um uh, and Robin have a sort of a an attraction to each other uh mm-hmm. throughout the books. And uh and she she uh, uh initially they don't nothing happens because they're afraid of an office romance, uh, which you, frequently you know don't turn out well so even though the two of them are attracted to each other um they they sort of they they don't get romantically involved but as the series goes on the two of them uh do become lovers they move in together and then um i don't want to tell what happens in in a matter of life and death but 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 Jeff uh, does get injured at some point, and uh, there are romantic implications,
0: and so, I, again, I want to
1: leave that as a surprise for the reader.
0: Okay, before I forget, Monday, this is really interesting. It's blunders, 34 blunders that Dr. Charles Telfoy wrote about, 34 uh, historical events that could have been avoided, like Pearl Harbor, World War II, um, and 9-11 and a whole bunch more. So that should be interesting. On the 8th we have Eleanor Cohns on the 12th we have Mark Sassy, a diamond for her. The diamond is a baseball diamond. On the 15th, Carrie Peralta and on the 19th, Daniel Parma, a perfect daughter. That was really scary. So when, at well, this, this part really was interesting and created a problem for Robin. We have about 12 minutes when she realizes that she has to find out what the next fight is going to be. Amanda puts her in touch with someone, and then Amanda's not too happy with her. Why?
1: Well, uh, this is this was a lot of fun for me. In the Amanda Jaffe series, Amanda and Frank Jaffe are a father-daughter uh, criminal defense team in Portland. And one of their clients is Martin Breach. So Martin pops up in a lot of the Amanda Jaffe books. And Martin is the uh, crime boss in the Northwest. He's the the biggest uh, uh, organized crime boss in the Northwest. And he's sort of a very, he's sort of a bizarre character that I've had a lot of fun with. And, mm. uh, in a matter of life and death, uh, Amanda is the second chair. Robin asks her if she'll she'll be the the second chair for the murder case, and they they start to realize that the key to 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 uh, uh, winning the case for Joe Lattimore is to find out who's been running these illegal no holds barred mm. fights and. Amanda says, "Well, I have an idea, uh, and uh, come with me." And she takes him to this strip club where Martin has his office. And he, like I said, he, I, he's a very bizarre person. Uh, I, I, I'll leave the description in the in the up to the book in the book. Yeah, but uh, Amanda says, "Let me do the talking." Don't say anything because even though uh, Martin appears to be this really sort of teddy bear type guy, he's very, very dangerous and the, and we my father and I have a real connection with him. Uh, Martin has saved uh, Amanda's life in a couple of the Amanda Jaffe books and sort of looked at her as a as a daughter. But she still has she has this really weird relationship with him because even though he's she's she knows he really likes her and has saved her life, she still realizes this guy is a cold-blooded psychopathic killer. Mm-hmm. So she tells Robin, "Let me do the talking. Don't say anything." And mm-hmm. Robin, without realizing it, uh, does a couple of things during the meeting that really upset Amanda because uh, uh, she, she Amanda feels like that Robin has not followed her instructions.
0: But... So let, uh, we have... So Martin, that, 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 no, asked, I don't blame her. Yeah,
1: but they asked Martin if he knows who's running these fights, and he eventually does uh, let them know when the next illegal fight's going to happen, and then there's a lot of uh, there's some big action scenes uh, that take place during the fight and after the fight. So, and I don't that want felt, to say what happens. You, that's no, I felt
0: bad for the guy that the, Joe killed, but he really didn't kill him. So, we have Stacy and Ian liked her. I know that. I'm duped. So, tell us about Stacy and how the judge. She sets the judge sets her up, and how he gets her back. She sets him up, and he gets her back.
1: Well, Stacy, uh, again, this is uh, something I really don't want to talk about too much because it's another no. surprise plot twist. So I like to, you know, to, to let the reader be surprised with what happened. But uh, without explaining what exactly happened, uh, Stacy uh, has ulterior motives. For moving to Portland and becoming Carrasco's mistress, and you don't find out what what her real motives are until later in the book.
0: We're not going to tell anybody that either. So poor Vanessa, when she realizes the truth, how does she deal with it? How do you deal with not well, knowing whether you're going to win or lose, or whether you're going to lose? How does she deal with it? And let's save face, we hope.
1: Well, you know, it's really interesting because I've always, when I again I practiced criminal defense for twenty five years, and uh, I really got along very well with the with the U.S. attorneys and the district attorneys um, who are on the other side. And my impression is that most of the uh, DAs and U.S. attorneys are very ethical people. Who try to do the right thing Not all of them, you do have guys that are Willing to cut corners and stuff But I think they're the exception Rather than the rule And I really respect the people In the district attorney's office And I've I've always said That the best defense attorney Is an honest Ethical prosecutor Because uh, The prosecutor's Job is not to win cases. The prosecutor's job is to make sure that someone who's committed a crime is convicted and receives a fair sentence. That's what they should be doing. So, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I've had this over the years, I've had this happen. Uh, if a prosecutor starts off believing that the person he's he's try, he's He's prosecuting is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, but at some point in the case realizes that they may be wrong; that the person may may actually be innocent. Uh, they have a duty, an ethical moral duty, to uh, uh, not continue with the prosecution. So. Uh, if a prosecutor is a is a really honest prosecutor, and mm. at some point realizes that the, that the person there who's the defendant is is, is may be actually innocent, uh, it shouldn't bother them at all to dismiss the case. Now that's pretty rare for that yeah. to happen, but I've had, it's actually had it happen in my practice a few times where. Uh, A person is arrested, charged with a crime. The DA believes that they've got the right person. But then when we investigated, I had some very good investigators that I worked with, and we could come up with compelling evidence that they had the wrong person, Uh, the good ethical prosecutors have no problem dismissing the case. Uh, you know, it's not a, the bad ones are the ones that won't admit they're wrong and continue to insist on prosecuting someone even though there's overwhelming evidence that the person didn't do it. But the good ones will dismiss the case, and they won't feel bad about losing at all because they're really mm. not losing. Again, I think the public misunderstands the role of the prosecutor. The yeah. prosecutor's job is to convict the right person and to make sure that justice is done and the good ones like I say like Vanessa who is very ethical uh, in real life would have no problem dismissing a case if they get to the point where the evidence uh, that they're seeing convinces them that that they've made a mistake that they've got the wrong person
0: so where do you see Robin next, and where can everybody well, learn more about you and your work, and what's next for me to get?
1: Well, uh, the the darkest place is the next Robin Lockwood, and mm. that is that is um, in its second round of editing. It's back in New York. So I wrote the book, sent it to Keith, and my editor at, at St. Martin's, he sent it back to me with his comments. I spent about two or three weeks uh, re- re- reworking the book. Sent it back to New York, so it's in New York right now, and keeps giving it another uh, looksee to, to see if there's anything more that we need to to uh, uh, work on before it gets sent. You know, gets approved as the final manuscript. So that should come yeah. out next. Next year, my books. Been, St. Martin's has been publishing the books in March, uh, so A Matter of Life and Death came out this March, and I'm assuming next March is when the the Darkest Place will come out. So it's almost that sounds interesting. Yeah, and I won't tell you anything about that book because <laughs> it's got some very interesting stuff in it, but big big surprises.
0: So on May. I'm doing another panel show on May 24th. Uh, the focus is—I thought—I don't know if you would do this with them, but it's, unfortunately, it's at 10 o'clock in the morning. The focus of this panel is discuss how you employ your career and integrate it in your novels. That I'm doing with um, Jim Nesbitt, Alan Tobo, Lance Baruso, who's a, a police officer, on the 24th, and on the 20th at 12 o'clock, actually. Um, Alan Jacobson and Dick Belsky, and I'm trying to find my find my thing on there on my on my phone. Yeah, we're going to talk about the main character of a novel faces many challenges. How do you create these challenges? How do they affect their jobs and their daily lives? So, if they're interested in either one, let me know because I'd love to have you on in the panel with these people to make it interesting. And oh,
1: it sounds great. If you could just email me. The, the biggest thing is I've been doing a lot of traveling, and I mm. want to make sure that I'm available. But I love doing panels. Um, I find it's a lot of fun to be with other authors. Uh, so just send me the dates, and I will check if, if if I'm going to be around. Yeah, I'd love to.
0: Okay, I will after. But before I stop, this is something I say at the end of every show, because after having a whole family that had the virus, and people Uh walking around and thinking that it's a joke, one small ask, be smart when you go outside, wear a mask, social distance, and don't take any chances, and stay safe. It it matters to me a lot. Um, October 29th, I lost one of my best friends to this virus, and... God must have been watching over me that day when I met her like the week before. I had no idea. She's a doctor's wife, and we were you know, carrying on for over an hour. The week after, I asked if my glasses were ready, and they told me she had COVID, and I had to get tested three times. And I was really lucky because I didn't get it, thank God. So everybody, just stay safe. I will email you um, the, uh, the dates and the times and the agendas so you could decide if you want to be on either one of them. I think everybody would be thrilled if you would be. But everyone, have a great day. Stay safe. Thank you so much, everybody, and bye.